Good morning, Chair City Church. How you doing, huh? I want to see something. Let me do this and do that. Does that help? Is that a good light? Any more light there? Okay. Yeah, I can't see, but if you can see, that helps. Appreciate your patience as we work through the transition, uh, you know, going from here into the new building. There are just some things that we have to take out sooner than we'd like to, to just get them going and get them working there. Uh, you know, at the, uh, at the new building. So I thank you for your patience and I thank all our tech people and production people for a lot of hard work, huh? So I want to welcome all to week four of our current teaching series, Swimming Upstream, huh? And if you join us for the first time, we're in, in this series, we're kind of studying through the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament, which is this, this is the part of the Bible that goes from when the creation of the world and what you might know is Genesis all the way up to right before Jesus was born. And in this part of the Bible, it, it's the book of Daniel, which is amongst other books called prophetic books, meaning in these books we kind of get, you know, they're talking about the future and things that could come and, and uh, of that sense. So I don't want to give too much away here. We call this series Swimming Upstream because it's a, just a good word picture for what Daniel did with his life for about 70 years. So at 14 years old as a teenager, he's taken captive, removed from God's promised land and, and God's people, the Jews, which Daniel was a part of, and he's brought over to the Babylonian Empire, Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. And there then he lives from as a teenager to into his 80s. So for 70 years, Daniel is faced with a choice because uh, Babylon, Babylon was a culture that was what we call ungodly, meaning they didn't honor God. They didn't think well of God. It was nothing to them. It was frivolous, ridiculous. And in some cases, they despised it huh, when it conflicted with their way of life. So when Daniel kind of compromised one foot in, one foot out, you know, a little here, a little there, or, or would he, and maybe in some cases, maybe abandon his faith entirely, or would he not go with the flow and would he hold to his faith? And that's what Daniel did for over 70 years from 14 into his 80s. Daniel held to his faith in God. So we're going to, in this series, we're looking at Daniel's life. It's a good example to how to answer the question, to answer the question, how do we live a godly life in an ungodly world? Because today, this, our country is not, I would not call it a fundamental, fundamentally a Christian country. I would not call this, you know, a quote-unquote Christian or godly country. I think, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad country or this is a terrible country. It's just not one that honors, appreciates, or values the things of God, to put it briefly. And I think that's just something we need to just to grasp and get a hold of. Now, here, as we walk into the sermon, Daniel is writing the story. He's sending a message to people. In, in, in this message, he's giving them a warning and he's giving them instructions. So I'll pause right there. Because when I say Daniel, the part of the message today, that when we glance into Daniel's life, we see in his writings, he's, he's writing this, he's recording it to send a message to the Jewish people then who are living in Babylon, and he's giving them this warning and these instructions. And I think when we hear the word warning, it's like, ah, oh, you know? It's just, it's not a good thing in our culture, right? It, we're kind of apprehensive to it, like, okay, where is this going? Oh, no, what else could I possibly have done this morning, right? This isn't going to be like, you know, uh, a warm and fuzzy and, and... But I do, I believe that in this warning and instruction message that Daniel gives us, that we can be encouraged and we can be comforted. 
I truly believe that, and I might reflect on some of that personally myself. So really, consider this message today one of encouragement and one of comfort, although primarily it's intended to be one of warning and instruction. I will say this, the message is meant for all of God's children, old, young men, women, boys, girls. I'm so glad my children, I don't think they're all helping today, right? I'm glad they weren't in there for that Father's Day video or some of them in here. Yeah. They were probably just going one by one by one by one, yeah. Okay. I actually have some better ones that weren't up there, huh? Uh, but, for, but speaking to fathers today, I think it's a gift to you today, this message. Because I want to ask you, I, I think as a dad, I've done some wonderful things and I've done some hurtful things, you know, in the span and the spectrum of me being a father, huh? And I believe part of this message, which, which goes towards pride is something that we battle with as men. How many of you today, at some point, in as much as you were helped, encouraged, blessed, provided for by a dad, at some times, to different degrees, were hurt by a father, huh? To different degrees. And when you examine that, would you think that if that man would have maybe leaned away from pride, meaning considering about himself more than others around him, indulging in things, to the extent of even hurting others around him, right? Huh? Behaving and conduct himself in ways without really thinking of how it's affecting others. How about even not acknowledging any of that and asking forgiveness and holding on, you know, to protect himself and his emotions rather than just say, forgive me for what I did and when I did that, and if it did in any way, sincerely forgive me. And that inability to even come to that place, huh? Which is pride. It's just nothing but pride, the protection and the sustaining of, of yourself as a man. Huh? And I think this message is a gift from God to any man, you know, and all of us, me and you included, because it's just something that we can struggle with, pride. All right, so with that warm, welcoming opening, let's... So Daniel here, is, he, he's writing the story to the people because he believes that by giving warning and instruction that one... He's going to point them in a direction to live a life that's worthy of dedicating themselves, themselves to. Meaning, hey, I'm pointing you in a direction. You're going towards a place where you can live a life, surrender yourself, giving yourself to a life that's worthy of doing that. We often go the other way. We pour ourselves into, I don't know, a direction in life, a way of life that really is so unworthy of who God made us to be. Two, he's saying, hey... Well, this will bring you peace and joy. If you hear the morning, if you heed the instructions, there'll be, this will bring you peace and joy. And three, it will draw you closer to God. Now, the reason why the story is here in the Bible, that we can access it here today, which I think is incredible, 2,500 years ago, this wisdom literature, which we believe is inspired by God, it's infallible, but it's wisdom literature, it's so wise, it's so rich, 2,500 years, we're still going into here today. I'll get to some parts later on in the sermon to add to the credibility of what I'm bringing you, that it's not a hocus-pocus, it's not a fairy tale, it's not made up. The reason why we are gleaning into this and we have it, the reason, the reason why we can hear is that we can hear this message of warning and instruction so that we can be directed to the purpose of living a life, living a life that is worthy of dedicating yourself to, ourselves to, that, that will bring us peace and joy, and that can and will draw us closer to God. What Daniel was writing about, 
in bringing warning and instruction was solely purpose, or I'm not sure, primarily purpose to draw the Jews then closer to God, and his purpose here today to draw us closer to God. Not to condemn us, but to give us freedom. Amen. Right? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, let's see, what's this? I don't know, maybe about 24 years ago. This fall will be 24 years ago, huh? I'm going to call this part of my testimony, right? I don't give my testimony often in its entirety. I think I did it maybe a f several months when we first came in here. It was a really, it was like a snowy day when it was an ugly day and we wound up coming in here. We didn't realize it was going to be that bad. Uh, and uh, there was a small amount of people, maybe a third of the people, and I just decided to put the sermon aside and I just kicked out my testimony. I just, you know, as we say, wung it, right? But I'll give you a part. Um, so... I'm 28 years old, and I think I've told you this in some degree or another, some part or another, and uh, so it's probably 1993. It's, at this point, it's probably somewhere around the fall, October of 1993, late September, and uh, I'm sitting there on the boardwalk in Coney Island. Uh, I don't know if they have a picture, they'll toss it up. Okay, there you go. So, and, uh, and I'm coming off of a time in my life right now where several weeks leading up to this point, I've been kind of, as I call, wrestling with thoughts of God. And I had to wrestle with them because my life was so depraved. I was very corrupt, very depraved, very prideful, selfish, hurtful, deviant person. Just, and I, if we had time, I'd add more words to that wonderful <laughs> uh, list of attributes of character. But, uh, and things have been happening, you know, small things, seemingly inconsequential, like, going into a store and paying for something, getting a dollar bill that says, Jesus never forgets you, you know, and uh, to, you know, you know, having to go to see physicians to, because I had gotten into a fight and, and hitting somebody, I had shattered a joint in my, uh, my left thumb, and they had told me that, okay, you're going to need fu surgery, fusion, and you'll lose about 50 to 75% of the use of your hand or that part of your hand, and now they're taking the cast off to examine it and see how it's going, and they're like, you know, listen, it's, it's, you're good, everything's healed, your joint is as good as, as, as if nothing ever happened, and we have no explanation for that, and I didn't say, like, praise God, I... I, I said, hey, Doc, you know, great job. And he's like, I, I really don't know what to tell you. And, and of course, the, I had been connecting to my Christian friends, as I called them, and they were like, oh, it's God, it's God. I'm like, oh, I don't know, whatever, you know. But, but I, I, didn't, I didn't embrace it, but I, I just couldn't dismiss it either, you know. So God had gotten my attention, right, in all these and many things in between these happenings in my life. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, at that time now, on this bench that I take my kids to every just about two years, I take some or all of my family into Coney Island, which is a which is part of Brooklyn, which is part of New York City, right? And uh, I'm sitting on that bench. It's a special bench. I go to it because that's on that bench in 1993 in the fall is where I had this conversation where I sat there in back of me of all the projects, low income projects, 45,000 people in 1.5 miles. Okay, pretty intense place. Out there to the left is the amusement park. You can see right up there to the right of that building is the parachute jump. It's a national monument. And to the front of me is the Atlantic Ocean and just, uh, and just the beach. And I'm just looking out over the beach and like, I'm just examining my life, who I am, the past, and I'm thinking about the future, which is something we as God's creation can only do in the way he's enabled us to do this. 
and I'm pondering it all, and, and I'm going back and forth. Like, okay, so if I, if I get into this God stuff, you know, what has to change? And can I do this, and can I do that? And what about so-and-so? Oh, he, oh, he's a BSer. He's a hypocrite, man, all this God stuff. And, well, yeah, but what about this one? I mean, they're really cool, and they were really nice. And I'm going back and forth and back and forth with all the calculations that we do. Even I still do this to some degree to this day. God have mercy on me. But in that moment, it was all that I knew. And then, in a moment, everything calmed, which, you know, if you know me, that's like stunning for my mom to just calm. And it just says, hey, either there is a God or there isn't a God, Dave. Which one is it? Dig deep, Dave. Do you believe there's a God or don't you? Because that's where this matter is settled. And I dig. I mean, I was still and rattled, and I dug deep, and I just concluded in that moment that there was a God. Now, literally, almost simultaneously, before God, with all that I am, I'm being so sincere to you as I have in the past, almost simultaneously, the thought came to me, okay, if there is a God, then the way you're living, the things you're doing to people, the way you're enabling them to live, the person you've become, this is not right. This is not, this is not a good thing before this God. And now he knows that you know, and this isn't a good thing either. <laughs> so the culpability level is now. <laughs> and so in that moment, I just decided that there was a God, and I was living in a pretty hideous way in light of who he was, and that there was a better way, and now he knew it, and I knew it. And, I, and that was the end of the conversation at that point. But at least I had some clarity, huh? So I just want to toss that out to you in light of walking into this sermon, huh? It's been a good 24 years, huh? Praise God. I'll just, you know, how could I not do what I do, right? So the first few weeks we talked about of this series, we talked about a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, one of the great, if not the greatest empire this world has known. And Daniel, as we said, meets the king sometime as a teenager, and really kind of draws close to him in his 20s when the king, in these incredible circumstances, has a dream, causing all his who knows what and all his knowledgeable people and scholars and magicians, and they can't interpret it. Daniel, in his 20s, comes in, interprets a dream, empowered by God, interprets a dream, gives glory to God, and the king turns around and says, okay, you're the man. He promotes him to the royal palace and particularly the royal court. You know, And during that time now, now all this time has passed, you know, maybe we're going on 30 years have passed since that time, oh, at least. Daniel's probably kicking up into his 50s. Nebuchadnezzar's in his mid-60s. Uh, and this entire time, Daniel is being used by God to reach Nebuchadnezzar. Because God created Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a child of God. Steeped in the evil, all that's gone on. Daniel wants to see Nebuchadnezzar know God as the one true God. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar continues to live out his life apart from God and refuses to repent and turn to God. So our story picks up today in chapter 4, right? It's really kind of, even though it's in the midst of Daniel talking about his personal life, it's sort of we see this injection of what I think is Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony, right? So the king of Babylon, I mean, if you go into the libraries, if you go into the schools, you, this, this is not made, this is the king of one of the greatest empires, and he's the greatest king of perhaps the greatest empire this world has known, and this is his testimony. What, what's been recorded in his writings that Daniel has, and Daniel records within the book of Daniel, okay? 
So now, my hope and my prayer is that as God got Nebuchadnezzar's attention 2,500 years ago, God will get your attention today. And I don't mean, you know, like, okay, so these are for people who aren't going to church or people that might not know God or who are struggling with. No, I mean for all of us, certainly, yes, you, but, but all of us, I think we all can hear this and be warned and be alerted, right? And, and, and really begin to double down and, and hold to God's instructions in our lives, that we can be refreshed in our faith and we can refocus our lives in God, that we can realize, I wrote this, I actually sat there and did a good inventory of my thoughts and said, man, you know what, you, wow, you, you need to do some, some you, know, you really need to dig deep here, you know, you really, I mean, consider right now that you are standing before a holy God, right, and consider the warnings, consider the instruction, consider what's at risk, do you want, Dave, to lose so much for so little, right? I don't, huh? So I think it's for all of us. All right, ready? Verse 1. We've got to press on. I, I've got my little timey here. I've got to flip back and forth, you know. Uh-oh. I'm just saying, uh-oh, because a friend of mine who worked on this message, he said, man, I finished that one 66 minutes. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. <laughs> and he's usually quicker than me. So, all right, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Okay. All right, sorry about that. <laughs> I was looking for the timer and said I got another warning. All right. So, King, so here, verse 1, chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. All right. So something has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. It's a big deal. So big deal. It's such a big deal. He writes it and he sends out this message to all his empire. And it's a big, broad, huge empire. Right? And he sends out this story through messages through messengers to all of his kingdom, when they get, when they, when they receive the letter, they open it up. Here's what they read in verses 1, continuing on 1 through 3. Peace and prosperity to you. This is King Nebuchadnezzar writing. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful are his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule for all generations. So King Nebuchadnezzar goes right to the point, right up front, this is a story about what God, the God, uh, has done in my life. Now this introduction to the letter, it's God of alarm and confuse the people opening it up. Because they know that Nebuchadnezzar serves the God of Nabu, huh? or the God of Bel. These are the Babylonian gods. He was named after the God of Nabu. So, what, you know, what, what's this God of the, what, what is he talking about here? Huh? What's happened to him? That'll happen to you, and it's happened to us, that when you begin to double down and really draw close to God, and it's evident in your life, people around you will kind of question that in different ways. You know, it, it just it kind of confuses them. It makes them uncomfortable. Just begin to pray to work through that. You know, don't meet fire with fire, you know, agitation, anger, if you don't meet that, ask God to give you clarity and wisdom to work through that, because it's not uncommon. Now, so the introduction leaves the readers wondering what has happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So here's a summary of what Nebuchadnezzar tells his readers what's going on. One, he says, I'm living a very prosperous life. Life is good, man, right? Two, I had a dream and it terrified me. Three, I called in all my fortune tellers, my magicians, to interpret the dream. They failed to do that. Now, eventually the king calls in Daniel. And it's kind of, I call it kind of interesting, maybe suspicious that he calls in Daniel last. Since, you know, years back, when it, we kind of revisited a similar scenario, maybe not as consequential, but, but serious, 
where no one can interpret a dream of the king, and Daniel does. You'd think he'd call him at first, but he calls him last. Maybe we'll get to that later on. Now, so chapter 4, verse 8 of Daniel. The king writes, At last Daniel came in before me, and I told him the dream. And Daniel is named Belteshazzar, after my God. And the spirit of the holy God is in him. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is huge. Not everybody is aware of who Daniel is, huh? Now, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to explain that Daniel did not serve Nabu, Nebuchadnezzar's God, or Bel, Nebuchadnezzar's father's God, right? Instead, Daniel served his own God, who's referred to as the Holy God. Now, when you look at this, these words written in the book of Daniel were written in originally in the language called Hebrew. The Hebrew word for, that's attached to holy God, God right there, is Elohim. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 1-1 that says, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. So he's saying, Daniel, he refers to Daniel and he says, that the spirit of the holy God is in him. He's saying, in him is the spirit of the God of heavens, the holy God. It's referring to the one true God. One true God. All right. So now Daniel, the people reading the letter understand, you know, that Daniel is one of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. And they get it that Daniel, this guy, doesn't serve our, I would say, false gods, but serves this, what we've heard of, this one true God, the God of the heavens, this holy God. So now with that introduction of who Daniel is, Nebuchadnezzar keeps going on with what took place in his life, his testimony. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, said to him, Daniel, who is Belteshazzar, I'm going to chop that up, Belteshazzar, somebody says Shazzar, that's cool, I can go Shazzar, chief of the magicians, that means the scholars, I know that the spirit of the holy gods, who is Elohim, is in you, and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. Here he goes. While I was lying in bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves, and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from that tree. Now as you recall, the dream frightened Nebuchadnezzar, right? Terrified him. Certainly this is not the part of the dream that rattled him, huh? So he goes on to keep talking about, hey, here we go. As I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, meaning he's talking about an angel of the God of heaven. Coming down from heaven, the messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches, shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit, chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now listen, here's a clue. It says, let him, now let him, so we know that we're talking about a man here, right? Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the holy ones, so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world, that God rules over the kingdoms of this world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even the lowest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I had. So now he's saying, hey, Daniel, which is his, the Hebrew name, that's the dream that I had. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me because the spirit of the holy God, Elohim, is in you. So Nebuchadnezzar's frightened by the dream, 
right? He, now, he has clearly, he has some idea of what it might mean, because that's why he's frightened, but he doesn't get the whole, you know, big part of it. What's the stump? What's this, you know, brass and iron, you know, a band around the stump? What's the roots? Uh, what's going on? This, this part about having the mental capacity of an animal, I'm a little concerned about that one, right? So he turns to Daniel and he says, hey, give me, give me the answers to my questions. Upon hearing this, it says in verse 19, upon hearing this, Daniel was overcome for a time, and he's frightened by the meaning of the dream. What we see here is that Daniel is like you and me, all of us guys and gals, that he has emotions, right? And we see that those emotions are kicking up. He's frightened like, man, I don't think I want to tell him what I know. huh? He's not going to be happy with this message. He's not going to be happy with this interpretation. huh? But Daniel holds to his faith. And the king must have sensed Daniel's kind of apprehensiveness because he says this. The king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar, Daniel, replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies. Wow, my lord and not you. Meaning, man, what I'm going to tell you, it's not good. It's so severe. I wish it on your enemies and I wish it didn't have to come into your life. Daniel's being compassionate. Maybe he's being wise too. Wisdom, compassion. I mean, Daniel does want to see this man come to know the Lord. Huh? So he goes on and he says, That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule ends to the earth. So now Nebuchadnezzar's fear is confirmed. He is the tree and he wants to know the point of the rest of the dream. And Daniel continues. Concerning the exact meaning of the tree being chopped down in verse 25, Daniel says, It's not that you'll be killed. Rather, you'll be driven from human society. You'll live in fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. You will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn the way of the Most High, until you learn the way that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He chooses. Now we learn in Daniel chapter 7, later on in the book, I think it's verse 25, that seven periods means seven years. So Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar this mental illness that's going to come upon you and put you in this state, right? Huh? Where you're going to be like a, wolf, a werewolf. It's what we would know as a werewolf. It's going to last for seven years. He goes on to say that that stump in the roots means that you'll receive your kingdom back again. So you'll be displaced from your kingdom, but then you'll receive it back again when you have learned that heaven rules. It says that in verse 26. When you have learned that God rules that heaven rules, this is one, when you come to that place and surrender to that way of being and thinking and living, that's when you'll get your kingdom back. Okay, now, that's, now that's all the king asked Daniel to do is interpret his dream. But Daniel's got a little bit more to give him, huh? You know, and this is kind of, you know, and this is kind of what I talked about before in the beginning. How it was sort of suspicious that the king brought in Daniel last rather than first, considering the history of Daniel being able to interpret dreams and his scholars failing. You know, you'll wonder if the king knew that Daniel might be bringing him and telling him something he didn't want to hear. Huh? Meaning we would call it living in self-denial or self-deception. God Almighty have mercy. Let's pause right now and take a hold of that. 
that there are times when we live in a self-denial or self-deceptive place where we don't want to hear something, right? We know it's true. We have a sentence something to it, right? And yet we just kind of reject it or we push it away. You know, even to this, to, again, to the extent that it might harm or hurt people we love, why not just pause right now? No more self-denial. No more self-deception, right? No more living a, a false and hurtful narrative in our lives and thinking that way. Let's today start a new story, Yes. Let's today begin to write a new story in our lives by just sitting before God with all boldness and all optimism huh, for the future and saying, okay, we're going to heed this warning. We're going to heed these instructions. We, and we are comforted in that and we feel a sense of freedom huh, and a sense of power in that. So keep going now. This is Daniel giving some unsolicited advice to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Pretty powerful for Daniel to go here now. Okay, we're stepping outside the interpretation, and here he is now. First he starts out, man, I'm frightened to even tell you the interpretation, and here he is now, after he stepped out in faith, and he's bold as anything, he's, oh, by the way, I want to give you some advice too, huh? And you're going to probably like this, less than the dream, interpretation of the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Consider people, man. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. So Daniel lets King Nebuchadnezzar know that God's judgment is coming because of his sinful way. But if he would turn from that way of living and he would trust in God, he'd be spared from actually having to endure what the dream, what happened in the dream, the sentence that was leveled on him in the dream. But sadly, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to Daniel. Huh? He didn't turn from his sin and he kept living out the same way. And a result of this, we read in verse 28 that all these things the dream predicted, did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's how it happened. Twelve months later, twelve months from when Daniel interpreted the dream, huh? he, Nebuchadnezzar, was taking a walk out on a flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. He looked out across the city and he said, look at the great city of Babylon. And he looked out across the city, he said, look at the great city, look at the great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Okay, so get this. He wasn't exaggerating. Nebuchadnezzar had built an incredible kingdom. You know, when he looked out, when he gazed out over his kingdom, he would have seen the, the, the blue gates of Ishtar, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Magnificent. When you walk through those gates, it was a half a mile to the palace, a phenomenal palace. That half mile was lined with walls, and on each wall, left and right, was 60, 60 pictures of these lines. I mean, really, for those days, magnificent, colorful, just booming pictures of these lines. They can't get the picture up. And what, what, what you're seeing there is a picture of when uh, I went to, uh, a couple of weeks ago, myself and Mike, who, you know, who's doing this sermon, we went to the Museum of, uh, is it Fine Arts? Is that what it is? Yeah, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, because they have a display right now. It's called uh, Near East, uh, Ancient Near East. And there they actually have statues of King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, I mean, archeolo archaeological proof of things I'm telling you. And one of the things they have is that in the early 1900s, in an, in an excavation project, they uncovered all 120 of these lions that, were, that, ran, that ran along the walls when you, you know, when you came through the gates and you went to the palace. And in Boston, they have one of them on display. So you, oh, there you go, what a guy. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and I, I tell you, it was just, you know, but just to, just to see this, you know, and to see how even now, imagine what it looked like 
2,500 years ago. I mean, when I, I could see it, I could just be there. And when, I, and when you touch it, it's, even though you're not supposed to touch it, when you, you could just, it's just a, it's an incredible thing. And to see how people would have been just blown away, like you're walking into a majestic presence as you walk down this kind of procession. And you, or you would have been incredibly intimidated, huh? And then he as well had the hanging gardens of Babylon, another one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, look, the guy had done some amazing thing. He was powerful. His kingdom was magnificent, and he knew it. And he said, look, look at me, man. No one is like me. No one has done what I've done. I am awesome. And this is where it takes a turn for the worse, my friends, okay? While these words were still in his mouth, this is what the Scripture says, while these words were still in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer a ruler of this kingdom. You'll be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time, which you know to be seven years, will pass away while you live this way, until you learn that the Most High, the one true God, rules over the kingdoms of this world and gives them to anyone he chooses. So here's, so now we have the angel, that King Nebuchadnezzar, Heard of in his dream, and now he's hearing from this angel in real life, okay? Now that judgment the angel pronounced is happening, is going to happen in Nebuchadnezzar's life, huh? It's not a dream, it's really happening, huh? It's a bad time when we have what I call this time of, I don't know, uh, I call it the rude awakening in our lives, right? When, you know, again, when we've lived in that self-denial, when we've kind of, when we've lived in, in pride, when we've protected ourselves and we've kicked that can down the road and not dealing with these things and facing them and trusting in God, huh? And honoring God, and now there's that moment of rude awakening where we're like, okay, the time has passed. There's no way to go. It's coming down on us here. It's just a painful time, you know? I want to tell you, you can avoid that day today. God is issuing that warning. God is giving you instructions to turn to Him, to, to just surrender to Him, to trust in Him for comfort, for freedom, for eternal life, for peace, for joy, for hope. Today, not your way, but God's way. My friends, my men, Shelve the pride. Humble yourselves before God. It says in 1 Peter that if we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, he will raise you up. Huh? All right, where am I? I'm all over the place. Okay, so look, it says this. At the same hour, the judgment, which he was, Nebuchadnezzar was warned of, was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. All right, so now his seven years, his hair's growing out, his nails are coming out. So you say, okay, this is a fairy tale too. You know what, in that same museum, in fine arts in Boston, they've gotten their collection, it's part of this collection. I don't know if you showed a picture. It's a picture drawn by William Blake, an artist from 1795, and it's pictures this authentic time in Nebuchadnezzar's life, right? And if it wasn't some legitimacy, if it wasn't legitimate, I'm confident that the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, Massachusetts would not put it on display, right? So this is world history we're telling you, right? It's not fairy tale, it's credible. Listen, this is what pride will do to a person. Pride will take you down. Pride will bring you to a place where you look so much less than what God intended you to look like and to act like and to be. This is what pride will do, men and women. Father's Day, my men, not you. Trust in God. Do not, do not let pride deprive you of knowing God. Do not let it distort 
what God has for you. This is what pride will do to a person. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. And a holy spirit, this is who I am, goes before a fall. Proverbs chapter 29, 23 says, a man's pride will bring him low, you know? It'll bring him low. Because of pride, God brought Nebuchadnezzar from the mountaintop into the valley. Huh? So low that he's eating grass, right? That's pretty low. Nebuchadnezzar remained mentally insane for seven long years. And from an outside perspective, it looks like it's over, it's lost. But then, huh, we know better. There's hope. Huh? He's a loving God. I, you know, they have this thought of, oh, he's just this, you know, this giant, uncaring, sadistic, you know, conceited being, you know, that's out there that just wants people to bow down. No, he is a loving God. How you can, just as he reached out to Nebuchadnezzar over and over, he reaches out to us and he reached out to the Jews. He's a loving, caring God. I might be getting ahead of myself here, all right? And we see this just like what it said in the dream. It says this, that after time passed, seven years, it says I. Now this is Nebuchadnezzar again. He says I. He's writing to everybody. He's giving his testimony. He says after seven years, after time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. To look up to heaven is to seek God's help, is to cry out to God, huh? Let's look up to heaven this morning. Let's cry out to God from within on who we are. Let's seek God. Let's acknowledge him. The scripture goes on to say, Nebuchadnezzar says, My sanity returned. I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. This is the king of Babylon writing about our God. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? Meaning, don't question this God. When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom. And with greater honor than before, meaning my life was better than before, things were better than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he's able to humble the proud. Wow, huh? That's from the king of Babylon, the king of one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. So when Nebuchadnezzar seeks God's help, his sanity is returned, his kingdom's restored, better than ever, just as the stump in the dream suggested. And he says, praise be to God. We say praise be to God for Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, right? So anyone can come to know God, huh? And anyone can humble themselves before God, right? So we can do that. We can know God. You can know God. We can humble ourselves. We can shelve the pride, those things, those thoughts that we've built up within ourselves to protect ourselves, to sustain ourselves, to promote ourselves. All right, so pretty amazing stuff. Again, just world history. Museum, Boston Fine Arts. All right, now, let's just move towards closing here. Somehow fast. What time is it? Yeah, wow, okay. All right. Look, the book of Daniel was written to Jewish exiles who were struggling to stay in the faith, who were struggling not to compromise, who were swimming upstream. Daniel was trying to tell them this, because some of them were compromising, and some of them were leaving the faith. And Daniel was saying, listen, God's judgment is coming on all who refuse to humble themselves under his leadership. Daniel was saying, listen, I'm telling you this story because God's judgment is coming. Huh? And that's why he included it in this fourth chapter of Daniel. Listen. 
Culture is constantly putting pressure on you and I to believe as culture believes, to go with the flow, to, to acquiesce, to give into the culture. I mean, therefore, it's culture, then it's right. We, don't even, we might not even think about it. We've abandoned critical thinking. Like, why is that? We just will go with that flow. huh? And we just throw in the towel, if you will. And some of us, we, even some of you here have done that. You've kind of meshed, you know, faith and culture. And again, culture is not bad. We don't reject culture. We interact with culture, right? But we don't acquiesce to culture either. We hold to the faith. We saturate ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the truth of God's word. Huh? Now, some of you are just tired of, but there is a, there is a rub there. There is a tension there. I think it's a healthy tension, and it, it's used to draw us closer and closer to God, less of ourselves, more of him. Because without God, we can't do it. We can't handle it. We've got to turn to God. We've got to cry out to God. We've got to lift our eyes and our hearts to heaven. This isn't about you being good enough. It's about him being good enough, huh? So, and you might have said, you know what, I, I'm just tired. I mean, I would, look at, I would look at the lives of my Christian friends, and, they, and I, I would start to try this Christian stuff. And I'd be like, just, it's, it just sucks, man. I get headaches. It, it's draining. I, I, I try. It really would overwhelm me. I would become very tired and weary of being good, of trying to be a Christian. And of course, I was doing it in my own way, for my own reasons, huh? Although seemingly, some seemingly well-intended, it was my plan for my purpose. I was not abandoning Dave's way. I was leaving some of the noticeable ugly stuff behind and taking some of the really survival instincts that I had occurred over the years, huh? The things that really made me tick. And then I was trying to take some of the good stuff from God and, and, and like, this is a good way to go. Meaning I had not come to that place of truly now deeply fearing God, which over time I would, sooner than later. All right, so look. And I want you to understand when you hear this word judgment, I know you think it's a dirty word. Like God's bringing judgment. God doesn't love us. Oh, God, God doesn't think well of us. Because when we think someone judges us, we think, we think of it in a negative way. And sometimes it can be a negative way. Because when people judge you, they're assuming they know your motivation. I said, we don't judge people here. There's truth and there's grace, Right? Truth is that's a sin. Grace is God loves you, values you, and you might be a better person in many ways than I am, right? <laughs> Whether you're smoking weed, living together, same-sex attraction, relationships, cursing, you, you might be a better person to hang around with. Well, I'm a pretty fun person to hang around with. But, <laughs> but you, I might want to hang out with you than, than some other people in here, right? I've said it over and over again. And there are many things that I would value in you and dig in you and want to know in you and have a relationship with you, with all my heart. But the truth is, if you stay in that course, you're turning from God. You're living apart from the one who made you, who put things in you that are so superior to the things you're holding on to to stay apart from him. He's put love in you, deep love. He's put a desire for hope. He's put something in you to care about others before yourself, which has to be divine, if you understand psychology. There's so much to you. He delights in you. He delights in you. So when we're talking about judgment, we're not talking about God. We're not talking about a condemning analysis of our motivations. We're talking about discipline, right? It's different. You know, we think, I remember I got ahead of myself, but I was at the, uh, and I think we confuse these things. And maybe that's why we see God in a terrible light when we hear this word, because that's how our culture sees it. I was at the building this week, I said Friday maybe, and uh, I'm painting in the bathroom. I actually do work, you know, apart what you told. 
and I was and, and I was standing there in the bathroom over a toilet. Do we have the pick? A picture question. Right, there you go. Okay. Stay with me, people. All right, so so I was standing over that toilet. I had them take a picture of that toilet, and I was standing over the toilet, and I was painting the left-hand side of the handicap bar. Now, what's going on there, you see that black thing that's on top of the flashometer? We had installed that so it would be handicap accessible. Can't have the flashometer on the left side. It's too close to the wall. So we installed this sensor, right? So it's a sensor. That's a, it's what it does. It's a sensor that flushes the toilet. So I'm standing there painting the left side, and my phone rings, and I look, and it's Loretta, right? So when Loretta calls, I answer, you know, as, as much as I can. Loretta's 89. She loves me. She prays for me. I, I, she's, a, she's so precious to me. So I can talk to Loretta with one hand, and I can paint with the, net, with the other, right? So I answer the phone, and I start talking to Loretta, and I'm painting. And she's telling me how she's thinking of us and thinking of me, and she's praying for me, and she's so excited for us. Even though she's, you know, she just came upon me, I wanted to call you, Pastor, and share this with you. And so I'm listening, and now I leave the left side, and I step away, and I go to the right side, and I start painting over here, talking. Well, I've left the center of the toilet bowl, I've moved to the left side, and after about 10 seconds, the toilet bowl viciously flushes. And I'm standing there with Loretta on speaker, I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm thinking, and you hear this awkward pause. And I'm like, what do I do with this, you know? And I, and I think her, like, I don't know if she giggled. Or I'm like, no, no, Loretta, it's not what you think. You know, it's just, and I'm trying to run as it's flushing. I'm running out the bathroom fast. I'm trying to get as far as I can from this, like, eternal flush. And I'm trying to, Loretta, I wasn't doing that. I mean, let's, oh, just get that word, get it out of her. I, I didn't even know what to say to her, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, she's going to think. She's going to judge me. She's going to think I'm a terrible pastor. She calls me to tell me that she's praying for me, and here I am, you know, doing my business. This is terrible. <laughs> so I kind of stopped trying to explain myself and just said, you know, Loretta, I love you. She said, oh, pastor, I love you too, and we, we got past it, right? But, you know, but again, that thought of, you know, that, oh, my God, she's going to judge me. She's going to think less of me. She, she's going to have these assumptions about me. This isn't what we're talking about. We're talking about God's judgment. We're talking about loving discipline. It's a cinnamon here for God's loving discipline. When we might call chastisement, God loves us, so he disciplines us. He trains us. He conditions us so that we can live a greater life, huh? filled with peace and joy and purpose and fulfillment, most of all, being with him in eternity. What time is it? Worship team, come on up. you got to get me out of here. huh? All right, so let's blast through this. huh? I'm going to beat 66 minutes. I'm going to do it. Yeah. All right, I want you to see a few things. I love my little Loretta, huh? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was telling, talking all about her doing drugs several months ago, and she went to Florida for a few months. She left us. Maybe she was in a drug recovery program. I don't know. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Anyway, look. So... I want, to, I want you to get these four, a few things, we'll close. We're going to make it a few. One, God is extremely patient with us. When the Bible says patient, it's talking about long-suffering, right? God gave the Israelites hundreds of years. He gave Nebuchadnezzar some time. He gave, he's giving us time. He reached, he reached out to Dave Trelongo. When I was sitting there on that bench, you know one of the things that eventually came to me? And you'll hear me say it over and over in my testimony, why me? I look back during the years when I finally, a few weeks later, when I finally sat before God and had that conversation, the thing that really resonated in me was that I could not deny that God had continually permeated my conscience, that he was continually speaking to me. And how many times, even when I thought back and said, 
some of the sickest, worst moments when I was in the worst place that I even then had to be honest that in drunken stupors doing sick things at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I call up my pastor who at 17 had taken me to her home and I would just talk to her. And we'd get off the phone and I'd go back to living the sick life I was living the next day. And I could not deny that God was reaching out to me, that he was so patient and so good to me and so merciful to me. God is patient. This isn't about a God who just sits there and he's detached and just to acquiesce to him and bow down to him. And here it is. Here's the rule. And if we don't do it, pound. No, he's even now he's reaching out to you. He's poking into that conscience. He's speaking into the spirit that he breathed in you, drawing you close to him, stirring it in you to surrender the way you're living and to turn to him. Next, there's no limit to God's grace, right? There's, I mean, I'm sorry, there is a limit to God's grace. I, I, and I, I put that in two words and I circled it. What I'm saying is this. There's truth in his grace and there's judgment, right? It says, in, meaning there are times when God, and I, that's what I felt sitting there, that the times when God says, with Nebuchadnezzar, enough is enough. I don't know when that exists in your life, I didn't want to find out when it existed in my life, even as I sat here doing this sermon. And I realized, you know what? Man, Dave, yesterday's Thanksgiving, yesterday, yesterday's culpability, it's changed. It's today, man. Examine yourself in this message with what you know and who you are. Right? Is there repentance needed? And there was repentance needed, huh? And once I did that, there was comfort. And I have a greater hope because I have a greater sense of being closer to God now. So there is a limit. First Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says in verse 16, and he's talking about religious leaders, they always heap up their sins to the limit. And as a result, the wrath of God's come upon them. Meaning there is this line. You know, friends, this morning, you can, you can pause and avoid stepping over that line. You know, I would have this weird saying, because you know, you have to say something when I go to visit my Christian friends, and my pastor would always say, so how are you doing, son? You know, she's just really bold little lady. She's getting my face. So how are you doing, son? I'd say, well, I'm doing good. She goes, are you walking with God, young man? She's just, I said, well, you know, I'm not walking with him. I'm not walking away from him. You know, I'm okay, right? Man, you know, what the heck was I doing? Thank you, Jesus. Walk with God today, you know. Don't find a cliche to, you know, bandage it. Don't, don't take your conscience and just, you know, shelve this thing. Walk with God today. You know, next, God will use anything necessary to get our attention, right? I saw that in my crazed life then as I look back. God used so many things to get my attention and so many people to get my attention. And sometimes those were displeasurable things. I can remember laying there at 25 years old in a pool of my own blood, paralyzed from the waist down. And even then, in that stupor, I knew somehow that God had done this to get my attention. I had not gone to church for years. I would not talk to God. I initially cursed him, but I knew that God had done this. The next day when I reflected back, I said, that was God getting my attention. I still went on, although somewhat tempered for a couple of years, to live the sick life I was living. But I knew, and I had this moment of clarity, that was God getting your attention, Dave, huh? He will do anything. He did it to Nebuchadnezzar. He did it to you. He used Nebuchadnezzar to get the Jewish people's attention. Huh? Look, things will come into your life. And it is a result of your not trusting God and your disobedience to God. Pain will come in. Suffering come in. Financial failure will come in. This will happen. If anybody tells you that God does not do this, they are misleading you. They are preaching heresy to you. They are distorting God's truth. Daniel 
inspired by God, gave the Jews warning and instructions. That same thing applies to us today. Let's honor God. Let's see the same God that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Let's honor God, yes? Let's realize huh, that it is God is worthy for us to, to humble ourselves to. Okay, so I'm just going to go on and just say that God humbles the proud, but he does so in love. Listen, God will bring you to a low place because he loves you. You know, and yet God, same God, will bring you through that tough time, huh? And he will glorify himself in you as you trust in him. I had a man call me up this week, and I've watched this man's life for the last year. And I don't know if he's in here today. I, I, I'll be careful. Let me just say, in a critical area of his life, there's been massive failure. Huh? And I've seen him come and go, more go than come into our our, our body. And I talk to Christy, because I tell Christy everything, by the way. You know, I don't intentionally tell her everything, but you need to assume if you're telling me something, there's a chance I talk to my wife about it, because she's my best friend. She's my, she is. She's my best friend in ministry. She knows me. God uses her in my life. Unless you ask me, please don't tell Christy, and then I'll think about it, and I'll tell you whether or not you should go ahead. And I was telling her about this man who called me and about the terrible pain that he's enduring. And I said, Christy, my God, if he, if he would have just trusted God, if he would have just yielded to God, if he would have you know, kept coming in, if he would have been part of the community that we have here, I believe there would have been protection for his just put marriage. I believe there would have been help for him. I believe there would have been nurtured and grown as that we would have, because we preach the full gospel here. We preach love. We preach hope. We preach healing. We preach sin. We preach eternity. Because that is the full gospel, yes? yes? That is scripture. I said he would have got that. And he would have got, and we preach friendship, and we preach relationship, and we preach ambition, and we preach dreams, and we preach all that stuff too. I said, I think he would have got that. There were men actually that were coming into his lives and that were calling him. It was happening already. Why did he give up so much for so little? Why did he keep going out in his way? Why did he turn from God, or at least the God of heaven? Why did he not honor God and go on living out the way he was? If he only knew that this day awaited him, I assure you he would have. And I said, I believe God, Christy, that God loves this man. He loves him. He wants his soul. And I'm believing. And I told the man, look for God right now. I, didn't, I'm, I said, look, right now, you know, you, you need to turn to God. And you need to see where his hand is in this. Because God's hand is in this. And you need to trust in him. You need to take a hold of that hand. And you need, to let, you, need, you need to incline to him and let you pull you out of this ugly pit. huh? And you need to do it his way. You need to honor him. With compassion, I told him, with kindness. I say the same thing to you. All right, listen, why don't you stand up? So maybe I'll see you stand and I'll really feel to get out of here. Six, am I at 66 minutes? I don't know. Oh, man, come on. All right, this is it. All right, friends, listen, don't be proud. Do not be proud. Do not think you know better than God. Do not think you know how life ought to be. Do not listen to cliches. Do not listen to hearsay. Listen to the history of the world. Listen to wisdom literature. Listen to something that has stood the test of time and that has changed lives. Huh? Listen to what God is speaking to you this morning. The ultimate worst pride is thinking, I don't need God. Don't be guilty of that today. Humble yourself before God. I want to invite you all of you, and especially those who are apart from God in the manner that you think is, exists in your life. Again, no more self-denial, no more self-deceit. Why don't you bow your heads?
within yourself, I'm going to say a prayer, and within yourself, as you bow your heads for yourself, for others, praying for yourself and praying for others right now, say something along these lines, you know, kind of like an exhortation from Daniel chapter 4. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much that you refuse to stand by and watch me go into damnation, go into hell, as you would continually watch me destroy my lives and deprive myself for what you have for me. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much, Lord, for being there for me. Thank you for loving me so much that you not only tried to keep me from hell, but that you made it possible through the life of your son Jesus for me to go to heaven, oh God. I not only not... I not only don't go to hell, but I go to heaven. I'm asking you, God, today to forgive me of my sins through Jesus. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to act as if I'm better than you. I don't want to stop hindering and and resisting, oh God, what you're doing in my life, oh God. Because, God, you cannot be resisted. You'll have your way, and either you'll have me in eternity or you'll have me in damnation. But, God, I know you want me in eternity, oh God. Tell me. Lord, show me the way. Forgive my sins through the life of your son, Jesus, who I now have confidence in, who I now want to lead my life for. Please, God, help me as I go through this life. Help me, God, when my pride comes on me and I feel it creeping in me. Let me not be fearful, Lord, but let me be filled with faith and trust in you. I can't do this on my own, oh God. I'm asking you now. I'm lifting my eyes and my heart toward heaven, and I'm asking you for help. I ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.